Welcome to Vaccines 101, where we tell you stories about scab powder that you definitely didn't want to know, and eventually make our way to vaccines you get for school. I'm Frances Murray. I'm Jonathan Durand. And I'm Victoria Rodriguez. Coming to you live from our designated work from home rooms, because I don't know if anyone's heard, but apparently we're in the middle of a global pandemic. Luckily, we're starting to get everyone vaccinated. As of last week, New York State's vaccinating anybody over the age of 16. So most of us are anxiously trying to find an appointment. It's kind of like a Black Friday sale, but for COVID vaccines. Uh, there's a lot of skepticism around the new COVID vaccine. And for some people, just a lot of hesitation around vaccines in general. But before we dive into the COVID vaccine, I think we should talk a little bit about the history of vaccines. So the topics that we're going to cover today will consist of the manufacturing of the first vaccine, a vaccine that's been adapted to better accommodate all age groups, a vaccine that has yet to be curated, and our global pandemic. So what was the first vaccine and where did it all start? Well, this all began with smallpox. So vaccines have become a pretty reliable means of boosting the human immune system, and they're pretty easy to get today. But in 1809, the concept of a vaccine seemed almost too good to be true. While you might have a few concerns about your annual flu shot, you might not have reacted uh, as enthusiastically 200 years ago if a physician offered to infect you with a virus found in sick cows. In 1796, uh, an English physician named Edward Jenner developed the first vaccine using the cowpox virus. Jenner found that milkmaids who'd previously been exposed to cowpox showed signs of immunity towards the smallpox virus, a disease that caused some pretty severe symptoms and often resulted in death. And so Jenner collected matter from fresh cowpox lesions, which he used to inoculate an eight-year-old boy named James Phipps, who was actually the son of his gardener. Ew. Yeah. James developed mild symptoms, but recovered in a matter of days. And then Jenner exposed him to matter collected from fresh smallpox lesions and James developed no symptoms, leading Jenner to conclude that his vaccination attempt was successful. Uh, Jenner's original vaccination technique involved rubbing powdered smallpox scabs into small scratches made in the skin, a method that's known as variolation that's thankfully no longer used today. Just to clarify, this was an eight-year-old boy? Yeah, an eight-year-old boy the son of his gardener. So there's a lot of questions about (laughs) consent and coercion. Maybe story for another day. This might sound like a huge ethical problem, but variolation was actually a technique used in the 18th century. Usually people were infected with a pretty small dose of smallpox to prevent them from developing full-blown symptoms. But the procedure wasn't always successful and people often died as a result. Uh, So it's not surprising that Jenner's discovery was initially met with some skepticism. And it wasn't until later when a doctor by the name of Amos Holbrook uh, found the same results with a sample size of 12 children in 1809. Um, Again, none of the children contracted smallpox, and so his findings served as a landmark for public acceptance of vaccination. Wow, I love this uh, liberal use of children here. Um, (laughs) But why was rubbing scab powder effective in the first place? And like, when do we start using needles and little tubes instead in place of scab powder? Scab powder, right. Well, (laughs) 
now we know that um, after becoming infected by the cowpox virus, the body's immune system actually generates very specific antibodies that are effective in fighting off cowpox, but also in fighting off the very similar smallpox virus. Um, the, the methods of vaccination have developed over the years, but it wasn't really until 1961, almost 200 years later, that the use of needles as we know them today became the most efficient approach. Um, so efficient that by 1980, smallpox had been completely eradicated. Uh, so smallpox has been er eradicated. Let's talk about a more common vaccine we might get today and maybe dive a little deeper into the antibodies and what they do. So actually, just prior to our current global pandemic, pneumococcal pneumonia was the leading cause of death in the U.S. And actually, a lot of the symptoms that are now associated with COVID are actually um, associated with pneumococcal pneumonia. Interesting. How do people experience uh, pneumococcal pneumonia and how does our immune system fight against it? So it's a direct attack on our respiratory system, which consists of aggressive coughing, high fevers, shortness of breath, and it can range in severity. Long-time exposure to this can actually be a threat to our blood and our brain because of a lack of air intake and ultimately can damage a lot of our organs. Honestly, the strong inflammatory response that is um, associated with pneumococcal pneumonia is conducted by our adaptive and innate immunities. So what exactly is the difference between our innate and our adaptive immunities? So our innate immunity would be our immediate primary defense response from our body. So this mm -hmm. usually is conducted by our own body cells dying or dead. And there are natural killer cells. They're able to distinguish between ourselves and the pathogenic species that's invading into our body. And so our adaptive immunity actually acts in a lot of the same similar ways but it consists of microorganisms that are found within the body and lymphatic cells. Um, the most important of these lymphatic cells that we possess are actually the CD4, the T helper cells and the CD8 T killer cells, which work in conjunction with B cells in order to fight the invasive species. And with more recent technology like vaccines, we're able to feed um, information to these cells so that they're actually able to prevent a lot of the aggressive symptoms and even prevent infection altogether. And currently pneumococcal pneumonia has two working vaccines. What are these two forms of the vaccine? So the first vaccine that was made was called pneumococcal polysaccharide vaccine, which is P PPV for short. And this was not seen as effective for younger individuals. A lot of scientists speculated that it had something to do with the immaturity of their immune system and lymphatic cells and that their immature cells were not able to acknowledge a lot of the certain antigen information. So now it's just recommended for individuals over the age of 65. And younger people are encouraged to be vaccinated with the newer um, conjugation of this vaccine known as the conjugated polysaccharide version. And there have been a lot more successful results with this one. Interesting. Do you know what makes the second version more successful, especially like among younger people? So the first vaccine that was created by the scientists, it actually uses a polysaccharide chain that makes up the surface capsule of the pathogen. And it's able to inform lymphatic cells and prepare them in case of infection. So this is actually completely independent of the T cells and it will directly signal B cells to create antibodies. And because of the immaturity of a lot of adolescents and children, 
their bodies aren't able to recognize a lot of the antigen information that's initially introduced. And so with the second version, it uses a conjugated version of the polysaccharide chain and it links it to a protein carrier known as CRM197. And this actually has proven to have a lot more um, effective responsiveness with B cells. So what is CRM197 and how does it improve the affinity of the vaccine? So CRM197 is actually a non-toxic variant of an antigen known as diphtheria. Diphtheria is another common respiratory um, bacteria that our bodies have been curated to for years. So we're able to better identify it. And even in younger individuals, the bodies are better able to acknowledge it. And in contrast with the first vaccine, this vaccine is actually able to um, activate T helper cells or CD4 cells so that they are able to use cytokine signals to activate B cells and allows for better formation of the antibodies and able to store this information over generations so that if they ever come into contact with it, they already have a built up immune defense. That's interesting. And I love the background music. It makes yeah. it ominous. Yeah. We got a lot of those New York sirens. <laughs> the New York experience. That work from home struggle, am I right? So um, although there's diseases such as these that are flourishing and able to have vaccines to prevent them, there's a lot of health conditions such as HIV and AIDS that are still prominent and awaiting discovery for a cure. Yeah, I mean, when thinking about diseases that have impacted the world significantly, I mean, one of the first ones that comes to mind is normally HIV. Mm. And while it's not talked about like it was in the 80s, um, more people have HIV today than we ever have, and we still don't have a vaccine for it. It's especially sad because in the U.S., HIV disproportionately uh, impacts marginalized groups such as the LGBTQ community and racial and ethnic minorities. That's crazy. So has anybody ever been cured of HIV? We can treat HIV and suppress it to the point where um, people who have HIV are able to live out their daily lives. However, only one person out of the 700 million people who have contracted HIV have been cured, which seems promising, but the really sad reality is we don't even know why that one person was cured. Um, but we're currently researching for both a cure and a vaccine that will prevent the disease from harming our populations. So how does HIV work? So HIV or human immunodeficient virus is a retrovirus that specifically targets its CD4 helper T cells, which you kind of went into. But um, pretty much what happens in our acquired immune system is when a foreign microorganism enters the body, we have these large cells called macrophages, which essentially eat the microorganism and then display a little piece of it on the cell surface. So it would be something like if it consumed a house and displayed the chimney on top of the microorganism, right? And this, this little display thing is called the antigen complex. So then we have CD4 T cells, which bind to this an, uh, antigen complex on the macrophage cell. And when it does, it releases cytokines. These cytokines cause the CD4 to clone itself. 
and simultaneously activate B and CD8 cells. These B and CD8 cells are what produce your antibodies, and they also create a specific uh, killing system in order to eradicate these microorganisms, right? So this CD4 cell is kind of the mediator between the microorganism itself and the antibodies um, that are being produced. So this, this is like complex and a highly specific and efficient process. However, what is targeted in HIV are these CD4 cells. And so this specific response that we have in our immune system is no longer able to occur and we aren't able to produce antibodies like we normally are. So when our CD4 count gets really low, people develop AIDS and they end up dying from very rare diseases that normally our immune system would be easily able to fight against. Right, right. Well, it sounds like we have a, a pretty thorough understanding of the way HIV works. So why are we not able to, you know, come up with a vaccine or some kind of method to cure it by now? Yeah, I mean, so the really strange thing about HIV, which we don't see in many other viruses, is that it's a retrovirus, which means that it can enter into these CD4 cells um, and it writes its own genetic code into the cell's DNA with the help of a transcriptase protein. Seems so essentially, yeah, right. So essentially <laughs> this, this, uh, this virus is able to hide its genetic code within these CD4 cells and it doesn't necessarily have to kill them. It can just remain dormant and then all of a sudden you know, 20 years later after entering into this cell, begin to replic replicate and start killing off um, all the CD4 cells. And this is like kind of strange. And it's why a lot of times like people can contract HIV and not know. And then, you know, one day become start developing the symptoms, becoming really sick, weight loss, et cetera. Do we have any sort of treatment for this? Or like, I know it's not the same as the 80s, but have we discovered any type of technological advancement towards it? Yeah, so the, the treatment that we have prevents, it can do one of two things. It can either prevent the cell from replicating and entering into new CD4 cells, or it can prevent the virus from maturing and being able to spread to other CD4 cells. Um, and so the problem is, is that we still don't know how to attack the virus genetic code that is in that is dormant within the dna and so we can pretty much attack the the virus when it's active and when it's you know out trying to spread but if it's dormant we we can't do anything about it um because in order to do that we'd have to you know sort of like attack all of your cd4 cells and it, it wouldn't be worth it it would just end up harming more than it would actually cure anything. And so the actually one of the biggest problems is that if you go on HIV treatment, you have to continue to take your medication daily. Even if your your count of HIV is extremely low, you have to keep taking it and keep taking it and keep taking it because at any point this um the dormant virus could, you know, resurface. 
So what are development methods for the vaccine that we could hope to see administered in the future? So one method that we have is called broadly neutralizing antibodies, which are antibodies that respond to about 95% of HIV variants. Um, the problem is, is that this is not a highly effective method yet, and the majority of tests taking place are with people who already have HIV. So we haven't really begun testing on people that don't have HIV. And it's one of those things where it's like you don't really want to affect infect people who have never had HIV with HIV for the sake of, of testing, right. right? And so this seems to stop the spread of HIV and clear infective cells of HIV, but there's not been enough evidence uh, gathered. Um, and then the other method that we have is prime boost regimen, which uses the shell of a different virus and it um, sort of releases safe fragments of HIV genes and an HIV um, protein to create sort of a mock in infection that allows the body to produce antibodies. Um, and this was shown to have a 31% infectancy, um, but more testing needs to be done again. Um, and the last one that we have is called HDAC inhibitors, which prevent HIV from being able to remain dormant in the CD4 cells, which would be a great thing, even if it didn't necessarily prevent, but just, you know, made sure that the, the uh, virus was not able to become dormant. Um, these vaccines, though, have shown to be toxic, um, and they end up suppressing the immune system. So an effective method is yet to be um, had. So although this is still under the way, um, we're going to actually end up closing today's episode by talking about something a little bit more promising, which is the COVID vaccine. So if you haven't already heard enough about COVID, let's get into a little bit more. So how were they actually able to produce a vaccine so quickly? I mean, they, there were a lot of factors that kind of went into that. Um, the first thing is that we had already encountered um, SARS virus back in 2002. And so we weren't necessarily starting from scratch. While we didn't create a vaccine for the SARS virus, um, we still had begun to develop a vaccine back then. Mm -hmm. um, and so once they figured out that COVID was, you know, a relative to SARS, we were, you know, able to sort of like get the move on. I mean, another kind of like really great and miraculous thing was that like we were able to have also this whole collective you know input of scientists across the globe we had governments pulling resources private companies investing and so there was a lot of science and money and support that was all driven towards developing a vaccine which you know uh money isn't the answer to anything but it can sure help when you're trying to develop a vaccine and then the last thing was uh -huh. is that like our approach was a lot more geared towards um, developing a vaccine. And, and so we took a different approach, whereas normally you sort of create a vaccine, do your testing on individuals, make sure it's safe, and then you start manufacturing. Um, we sort of, uh, our, our approach to it changed a little bit with COVID because we were so desperate to get this out on the market once it was safe that we actually came up with the idea for the vaccine 
we started manufacturing it. And while we were manufacturing it, we were also testing. So Mm -hmm. it allowed for like, once those tests came through that it was okay to use, we already had a pool to give out to the public, which made, uh, you know, delivering this vaccine to the public a lot quicker. Mm -hmm. That's kind of risky though. I mean, if you start developing at later stages and the earlier stages don't work out, I mean, that's a lot of wasted resources, right? Yeah, totally. But at the same time, we had the money to sort of take that risk. I mean, that's what the whole Operation Warp Speed was about. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Um, Why is it called coronavirus? So actually, the structure of the pathogen itself is very critical to its name. So the spike protein that is a distinct feature of COVID is somewhat simulates like a little bit of a crown on the virus. And it's kind of like it gives it the corona name. So then is the spike protein targeted with the vaccine? So actually the vaccine is able to use to utilize the genes that code for the protein and inject it into the body so that lymphatic cells are able to recognize it for later infection. It's very similar to the polysaccharide vaccine in that it's able to take information of the actual pathogen and acknowledge it within the body so that it's prepared for infection. So... Why do some infected individuals contract severe symptoms uh, when they get COVID while others just receive, you know, flu-like symptoms? Mm -hmm. Good question. So the severity of the virus is actually due to our innate immune response, where there's kind of an aggressive inflammatory response to the virus, which results in damage to the airways. This creates difficulty breathing and low blood oxygen levels, possible respiratory death, which accounts for 70% of COVID death cases. Um, additionally, the vast release of cytokines by the immune system can cause symptoms of sepsis that are the result of 28% of COVID deaths. Uncontrolled inflammation can also cause damage to the other organs. And so the mode of attack taken by the virus is actually infections of cells using that spike protein that we mentioned. And so the infected cell then undergoes uh, pyroptosis, which is a highly inflammatory type of cell death. This releases cell particles that are recognized by neighboring cells, which trigger the release of cytokines and chemokines. And these molecules attract macrophages and T cells, causing a further uh, inflammatory response And so we kind of end up stuck in this seemingly endless feedback loop. uh, And that's what causes damage to the lung infrastructure. Hmm, that's kind of interesting. So what actually leads to these people losing their sense of smell? Yeah, so I was actually like super intrigued by this because um, I actually got COVID uh, back in March when it like first was in New York City. Oh no. like people didn't know anything about it really at the time and so people didn't know that like you lost your sense of smell right so like when i got covid the one of the only things that really happened to me i mean i got like a little bit of a cough but i lost my sense of smell i was cooking curry one night and i was like what the heck? I like smell anything that i'm doing Aww. right well <laughs> so it kind of just made me want to look into this um so just as a fun fact you know the first thing that COVID really comes into contact with is your airways. And one of those airways is your nose. Mm -hmm. Um, And so you have a lot of neurons leading from your nose into your brain. Um, And luckily, the 
coronavirus does not attack those nerve cells. But what it does attack is the cells surrounding your nerves. And so there's a bunch of like metabolic uh, cells that kind of feed and give like food and, you know, life to these neurons, um, which, you know, allow you to smell. Um, and it attacks those metabolic cells surrounding and it kind of shuts down your like nerve pathway, um, causing you to not be able to smell temporarily. And just likely it's, it's, you know, the metabolic cells and not your actual neurons, because otherwise that could cause like real damage and cause you to lose your sense of smell for a while, you know? Right. That wouldn't be as temporary. That's <laughs> funny that you mentioned the curry because that's how I, I, I also had had it back in November. And I, I found out one morning when I was making my morning cup of coffee and I couldn't smell it. And it was like the worst thing that could have happened to me. That's so sad. <laughs> I'm a coffee person. Sounds good. <laughs> <laughs> but I guess we we're fortunate that those were kind of the only symptoms we experienced. Oh, definitely. Mm -hmm. Have either of you actually been vaccinated yet in terms of COVID? So I haven't yet, but I do plan on it. Okay. Yeah. I just got my, well, actually, I'm kind of like right in the middle. I got my uh, first shot of the Moderna, and I'm going in like a week or two to get my second one. That's good. That's yeah, great. What about you? My first one is scheduled for tomorrow. I was finally Ooh. able to find an appointment, so I'm excited about that. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> Well, while there are debates surrounding whether or not to get vaccinated, uh, just so we know, these claims are largely based on conspiracies and political motivations rather than science. Right. Public skepticism towards variolation 200 years ago seems justified, but there's really no reason to resist getting vaccinated today. So if you don't trust the science, take it from the three of us college students who definitely know what we're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> Vaccines have allowed us to eradicate so many diseases that have plagued the world for centuries. So when asked why you should endure getting vaccinated, the reason is to ensure that your immune system has the ability to protect you against disease and that so you can do your part in stopping the spread. So today's takeaway is Get vaccinated so that when you cook curry, it tastes as good as it possibly can. <laughs> and if you haven't already been vaccinated, you should get on that. 